uh, reading Acts 23, 12 to 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But uh, do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, and they have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one um, that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, take 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to, the, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now desiring to know the charge for him, which uh, charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, uh, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when I, when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what, provident, what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for all you do for us. We thank you for your providential protection of Paul in this situation. Lord, we thank you for your, uh, especially, Lord, for your protection of your plan to spread the gospel to the whole world. Lord, and I, I just pray your protection of um, brothers and sisters who are in dangerous areas who are presenting your gospel. And Lord, I pray for our own church, Lord, and our own community, Lord, that you have plans to spread the gospel here as well. And I just pray, Lord, that you would just help us to 
be the men and women you would have us to be uh, to spread your gospel. And we thank you. We ask you, Lord, to please be with Pastor Jeff as he brings your word this morning. Uh, give us ears to ear and eyes to see what you'd have us to see from your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Chris is one of our elders reading scripture over you this morning and praying over you. And thank you, brother, for, for how you love and serve the church. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you'll need them this morning. Acts chapter 24, we find ourselves right here smack dab in the middle of a large narrative where Paul has made him, his way to Jerusalem. And uh, it's just event after event after event. And so we are in a lengthy narrative. Uh, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week and through the reading that we just had that believers can take courage in God's sovereign plan, part two, right? So we are just going to kind of continue through this. We saw that God has a sovereign provision. And when we talked about God's sovereign provision, we talked about how Acts 23, 1 through 5, God is a God who gives his grace and his mercy. It's the very thing that we absolutely need because we are hopeless and we are helpless. And so we need his provision of grace and mercy. He then shows up and stands by Paul as he is in the barracks there, and he shows that his presence is also there with him. So we need God's sovereign presence in our life. We know that God revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ, that he lived in and around us, and now he lives in and through us by the indwelling power of his spirit. So we need God's sovereign presence. The lengthy narrative that he just read there in Acts 23, 12 through 35 shows God's sovereign providence. All of these are leading towards God's sovereign plan. So you might ask yourself, well, what is God's providence? It's a difficult concept to wrap our finite minds around, but God's providence is God is actively carrying out his divinely ordained plan in the events and lives of his creatures. Can you believe that there is a God who is so sovereignly in control of all things that he's working all things out according to his purpose and his plan. Even so, as we just read, how Paul is being protected by Roman soldiers and how they're moving him where he needs to go in order that he can then testify in Rome. God is in, he is in complete control of the things that are going on in this world and around us. He is moving things in and around behind the scenes to accomplish his sovereign plan few verses that back this up. We read last week, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes. We have a sovereign God who is working out his, his provision his presence, his providence, his plan. He's working all things out according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Believers can take encouragement today knowing that as the world is going on around us, as things are happening we have a God who is completely in control of all things, working out all things for his good, for his glory. He's working all things out, using his creatures and his creation in order to fulfill his divine purpose and his divine plan. Now, it's difficult to understand, so I'm going to give you a definition. Wayne Grudem says this, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, 
keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. I think that wraps it up pretty well, right? Don't you just love reading theology books for your uh, spare time? So let's kind of, let me help you work through these. Number one, what is God's providence? It's his sovereign preservation. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Talking about Jesus Christ. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now just get the idea of this. By the word of his power. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. The Word spoke things into existence. God created all things by the power of His voice, and right now all things are sustained by the power of His voice. If He was to stop sustaining, we would stop existing. We serve a God that's so much larger than we can even wrap our minds around that He is working all things out for the glory of, of His name. So we can take courage in that. Colossians 1.17 and, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Right now, you are being held together by the divine providence of God. He's holding all things together. What is his providence? God's providence is his sovereign congruence. He's working things together. Look at Job 37, 6 through 13. Let me just read 11 through 13 for you. He loads the thick clouds with moisture just take a second, glance out the window, and look at the rain clouds that are out there, and think about how he loads the clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to, to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for his love, he causes it to happen. God is divinely in charge, sovereignly in charge of all things, even nature right now, and he is using them for his glory and for his purposes. Romans 9, 20 through 21, but who are you, O man, to ask, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? We serve a God who is so sovereignly in control of all things, working all things out for his will and for his glory that he is even using the creatures and the creation in order to accomplish his divine plan. So what is God's providence? The third one is that he's sovereignly governing governing, Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is in complete control of the inhabitants of the earth, in complete control of the host of heaven. And he's working things out, and we see in Acts 17 that we read a few weeks ago, 26 through 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods 
and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Today we sit here under God's sovereign provision. That he is a God of grace and a God of mercy. A God who is loving and who is forgiving. We sit here today under a God of sovereign presence who doesn't want us to be alone, who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's a God who gives us his very own spirit that was the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead so that we could have life and have it everlasting so that we could be sealed for a day of redemption. God's sovereign providence, the fact that he's working behind the scenes of each and every one of our lives, each and every one of us, God is working things out so that we might perhaps search for him and find him, because he is not far from each one of us. So we add that to our responsibility to follow God's sovereign plan. There's God's sovereignty, and then there's man's responsibility. We each have been given a responsibility to submit to the plan of God, and that equals God's sovereign will. So, the key verse, Acts 23, 11, we looked at it last week. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Since God has so richly blessed us with his provision, his presence, and his providence, we must testify. We have a responsibility. We must testify because it is according to his plan. I like how Herschel Hobbs put it because we're diving into an interesting thought of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. He says, the Bible does not try to harmonize God's sovereignty with man's free will with respect to his foreknowledge. It assumes that both are true. This is a mystery to our finite minds, but not the finite, infinite mind of an omniscient God. God is in complete control. Tozer would say it this way, God will not hold us responsible to understand the mysteries of election, predestination, and the divine sovereignty. The best and safest way to deal with these truths is to raise our eyes to God in deepest reverence and say, Oh Lord, you knowest. So let's pray. Let's pray to the one who knows. Father, we thank you that you are in complete control of all things. Father, as we get into your word, I would pray that your spirit that indwells us, the presence of your spirit would enlighten your word to us, Lord. And I pray that those who don't know you, who hear your word today would be drawn towards you because you are a good and gracious king. We thank you that you are governing all things, that you are working all things out for your glory, and we ask God that you would use us in your divine plan to bring honor and glory to your name. Father, we thank you for the responsibility you've given each and every one of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. First thing I'd like to see as we get into Acts chapter 24 is evangelism is essential, not easy. Not easy. Starting there, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when they had summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, 
one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So here we are, this group of Jewish leaders who once stood before Pontius Pilate, now stand before Governor Felix. The ones who once brought accusations against Jesus Christ now stand and bring accusations against Paul. In fact, Pontius Pilate held this position from 26 to 36, and Felix is holding the same position from 52 to 59. Things tend to repeat themselves. But this time, these Jewish leaders have brought with them an attorney. And they brought the attorney, the attorney to bring an accusation against Paul. So they're bringing in the big guns to cross-examine him so that they can accuse him and hopefully put him to death. And he brings three main accusations. Number one, he's a plague. Number two, he's a political ringleader. And number three, he's a profaner. Let's try to accuse Paul of these three things. And so, number one, he's a plague. Now, a plague, by definition, maybe you know what a plague is recently. It's a contagious disease that spreads rapidly and kills many people. Sound familiar? A plague, it's also a thing that causes trouble or irritation. And so this is the accusation that's brought against Paul. Paul is a contagious person who is wreaking havoc and who is a continual irritation to all of us. So what we see is that Paul's evangelistic impact was causing trouble and irritation for the Jews because he was successful in being a witness of Christianity in every town that he went to. Christianity began to spread like a plague. Let me ask you, this is an interesting question, might, might be too soon, might be going too far. What if Christianity spread like COVID? I mean, think about that. What if Christianity was so contagious because of the witnesses of Jesus Christ that it began to spread like a plague? What if every time there was a large gathering, you knew somebody was about to get infected with the, with the Savior? How cool would that be? Can I go a step further? What if Christians took off their religious mask long enough that they started interacting with people in a contagious way? See, Paul is being accused of being a plague. This guy's contagious. This guy's causing problems. This guy's an, this guy's an irritant. This guy is living in such a way that people are beginning to catch on, and we can't have it anymore. Can I ask you a simple question? Is your manner of Christianity contagious? Are you infecting people with the good news of Jesus Christ? May God do work in my life and in your life that we are so contagious that we can't even explain what God's doing in his providence, that he is working all things out for his glory, and people are coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of our responsibility to simply be witnesses because it's essential, not easy. You know, plagues are not new. <laughs> They've been around for centuries, really. 
In 249 to 262 AD, there was the plague of Cyprene. It was a lethal pandemic. At its height, it caused up to 5,000 deaths a day in Rome. While the plague was severely weakening the Roman Empire, the Christians' response was winning admiration and a great following. Dionysus, the bishop of Alexandria at the time, wrote this, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounding love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their very need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. There was a response by those who were witnessing in the time of this plague. And he goes on to say, but with the heathen, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick and fled from their dearest friends. They shunned any participation or fellowship with death, which yet, with all their precautions, it was not easy for them to escape. Isn't this interesting? This was written many, 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 many years ago. How about another one, Martin Luther? Back in 1527, a, daily, a deadly plague hit his hometown of Wittenberg, Germany. And actually, from the 14th century onward, the Black Death, as it was called, haunted Europe. In just five years, it wiped out as much as half of the population, with urban areas being affected the most. Him and his wife, Katharina, remained there to care for the sick, citing Matthew 25, I was sick and you did not visit me. According to this passage, he felt that he was bound to love and serve others in such a way that would represent Christ and show Christ to them. And Luther said this, Luther spoke of circumstances where fleeing were permitted and ever conscious of the propensity towards self-righteousness. He warned Christians not to judge one another for different decisions. Wow, that was written many, many, many years ago. What if we were to not judge other Christians because we don't see the same way in the time of a pandemic? Could it be that then our witness would be so contagious because we show a love of Jesus Christ, knowing that he's working all things out for his glory because he is in sovereign control? God's plan for you and I is to be a contagious plague of Christianity. That's his plan for us. His plan for us is that we would show the love, the hope, and the mercy, and the grace of Jesus Christ to all we come in contact with, no matter what is happening in this world. So let me ask you one more time, is your Christianity contagious? He was accused of being a political ringleader. Political ringleader. I like how Vance Havner puts it. Wherever Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. So in a sense, the charge has some truth, but it was not Paul who was guilty, but the Jews who opposed his gospel message. Indeed, the gospel does stir up the status quo in the lives of sinners. So remember that Paul is on trial for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need not be surprised when we proclaim the gospel to others that they, in a sense, put us on trial. For the gospel stirs up folks, 
especially religious folks, who are satisfied with their ritual without a relationship with God. Paul is accused of being a political ringleader who was messing up the Roman peace. Christianity, no matter how people try to pinpoint it or define it, is not a political subversion or a political party. And thus, Christianity does not have a political identity. No, Christianity is a spiritual reform and a manner of life that finds its identity in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Let me ask you, have you found your identity in Christ and Christ alone? Is he the thing that defines your every move that you make? My identity is in Christ. He was also accused of being a profaner. This goes all the way back to Acts chapter 21, 28 through 29, where they said, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. This was all hearsay. This didn't actually happen, but this is what they're trying to use to accuse him of living in a manner that went against their beliefs. And in fact, he is being cross-examined because of his character and his conduct. We all have the tendency to be cross-examined as Christians because of our character and our conduct, not necessarily our competency and our comprehension of God's Word. When's the last time that you were questioned because of your comprehension of God's Word? When was the last time you were questioned because of your conduct that went against God's Word? Being a witness is essential. It's not easy. In fact, Tim Keller says it this way, 95% of the time, the way to defend the gospel is to live it out. To live out the gospel. Number two, evangelism is our character witness, not our competent capability. Let's pick up there in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with, with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So Paul is put on the witness stand. 
you see the courtroom kind of taking place. Now it's your turn, Paul, to give an account of the accusations that have been brought up against you. Let's hear your witness. I've not done a lot of time in, in the courtroom, praise the Lord. I've not been cross-examined by a lawyer, praise the Lord. And I hope to never have to do that because I can imagine that it's kind of scary. I would imagine that it's hard to keep your words straight, to make sure you say the right thing, to not get tripped up on your words. And so Paul, he's there and he's giving this account. I heard a story of a small boy who was on the witness stand in an important lawsuit. The prosecuting attorney cross-examined him and then delivered what he thought would be a crushing blow to the boy's testimony. The attorney said, your father has been telling you how to testify, hasn't he? Yes, the boy replied. Now, said the attorney, triumphantly, just tell us how your father told you to testify. Well, the boy said modestly, father told me the lawyers would try to tangle me up in my testimony. But if I would just be careful to tell the truth, I could repeat, repeat the same thing every time. Isn't that what our Father tells us to do with our lives? To live in truth? You see, if you live in truth, you can repeat the same thing every time. You don't have to worry about getting crossed up. Well, so-and-so, you told this, and so-and-so, you told this, and you live this way among these people, and you live this way among these people. If you would just live in the truth, you wouldn't have much to worry about. So Paul, as he's put on the witness stand, shows a character and a conduct that is living in truth. Verses like John, 2 John 4 says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. 3 John 3 and 4, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Walking in truth is walking in God's absolute truth. Did you know that there's an absolute truth? There's an absolute truth. Now, the world would try to tell you otherwise. They would tell you that there's subjective truth. But that's not the case. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no subjective truth. So walking in truth means bringing our lives into conformity with God's revealed truth. We are not called to live our truth, but to live his truth. You might have heard this, and you might not have heard this. And if you've not heard this, then, then good for you. You totally avoided all kind of social media. But you might have heard this. You just need to live your truth. I'm living out my truth, you live your truth, and we'll all be happy living in whatever truth that we think is subjective. But that goes against God's truth because absolute truth says that there's a wrong and a right. It says there's a good and there's a bad. So how can someone who claims to follow Jesus Christ, who is the truth, absolute truth, live a life in subjective truth without any repentance? It's not possible. It's not possible. That's why we're called to live in the truth. So what is the truth? Let's look at 14, 15, and 16, these verses one by one. But this I confess to you, that according to the way 
which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So what does Paul do first? He says, listen, the word is the truth. The word of God is truth. Paul's truth was God's truth written in his word. I'm going to live according to the word. I believe that it is truth. John 8, 31 through 32 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. This is the high priestly prayer. Your word is truth, is what Jesus says. So we are to walk in truth because we walk in, a, in accordance to the word of God, which is truth. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Living in truth means living in light of the eternal and not the temporal. Living in light that there is going to be a day where there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Absolute truth. Verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Are you living in his truth? One day you and I will stand before Christ in a cosmic courtroom. He knows your heart. God knows if you're spiritually regenerate and repentant or if you're spiritually intelligent and indifferent. Can I just say that again? The just and the unjust will rise one day and stand before Jesus Christ in a cosmic courtroom and he knows you. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's working all things out, and we will stand before him, and he knows the difference between the spiritually regenerate and repentant and the ones who are spiritually intelligent and indifferent. Let me ask you, have you ever told a lie? you ever stolen something? Have you ever hated someone in your heart? Have you ever coveted after someone's things, their house, their car? Have you ever lusted in your heart towards someone else? You see, one day we will stand, and we will either stand by how well we kept the law, or we will stand covered by how well Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. And apart from Christ, there is no way to God. There is no truth. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. If you've been reading in your chronological Bible, welcome to the New Testament, right? You would have read these verses this week in John chapter 5, 21 through 29. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, because we were all dead in our sin. Amen? Son of God, and those 
who here will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Simple question, if you were to die today and stand before Jesus Christ, would you be found in him? Do you know for out of, without a shadow of a doubt that if I was to die today, that if I would stand before the Lord and I would stand covered with full atonement for his work on the cross? Or would you stand condemned, having lived apart from Christ? Romans 3, 22 through 26, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Is that your testimony today? So he says, I will take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Our conscience is clear before God because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. But as far as with man... 1 John 1, 5 through 10 says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in, in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Let me ask you, have you confessed your sins to Jesus Christ? And do you have fellowship with one another? A good conscience with both God and man. Let me ask you, is there someone in your life that you've sinned against? Is there someone that you've wronged that you've tarnished your witness with? Is there someone today that you need to go to and say to them, God has convicted me about this and I confess it to you and I ask for your forgiveness? Paul lived on the witness stand of truth in good conscience with God because of the work of Jesus Christ in good conscience with man because he was willing to ask for forgiveness when he wronged others. The last point, real quick. Evangelism is about obedience, not the outcome. Let's read verse 22 through 27. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, 
who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent, him, sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Procurus Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years, Paul was a witness in prison. Evangelism is essential. It's not easy. His life was put on the witness stand where he lived a life of truth, and he was able to be a witness in that truth for two years. Many of you have heard the old legend that says the devil was trying to come up with a good decision of how to send more people to hell, and so Satan gathered up his demons, and he said, what, what do we got, guys? What can we do? And one said, send me. I'll just tell people there's no God. He said, ah, oh, they won't believe that. Most of them know there is a God. Another one said, well, hey, send me. I'll tell them that there's no heaven or hell. Satan shook his head. and was like, well, that's not going to work. They, they know that there's got to be something out there. And the third one said, hey, hey, send me. I'll tell them there is a God. There is a heaven and a hell. But hey, there's no hurry. There's no hurry to decide. You see what verse 22 says? But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. Many, many, many have an accurate knowledge of the way, but keep putting Christ off. Let me ask you, have you made a decision to give your life to Christ, or do you just keep putting him off? Evangelism is about our obedience, not just the outcome. We see the outcome here with Felix, that he just keeps putting him off. Though he's alarmed, he stuffs that away and continues with his life of sin. But we are to be obedient because evangelism is essential, not always easy. Let me pray for you. Gracious Father, as we've heard your word, we realize, Lord, that it is you who are in the business of saving souls, that it is you who is working out all things for those to have a chance to hear the good news of the gospel. And Lord, you have made us ones who are to go and to proclaim it. Father, I would ask that by the providence, by the provision, and by your presence, that you would equip us to give the good news, that we would respond with a responsibility to share that news with everyone we come in contact with because our character and our conduct align with a good conscience before you and other men. Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know if they're covered, that you would lead them to repentance. You would lead them to ask you to forgive them and that they would put their hope and faith and trust in you right now through a simple prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?